there are no pressing announcements other than watch out for your valuables still. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. stand and sing hymn 426 426 Christ Jesus to return, God Almighty, that we may reign with him through grace and mercy and power and justice. Our Lord Jesus, we pray in particular that your spirit would be with us this morning, that we, Lord, would tend unto your word and praise God, that we would grow thereby and grow in our love and gratefulness for the redemption that we have. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's prayer. He taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the be seated. Hear the responsive reading of Psalm 35 inside the bulletin. Let us read it responsively. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God, and my Lord. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, so we have it. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. So here we have a pleading of his righteous cause. We've gone over a similar psalm before. And it's, it fits with the sermon this morning on Zechariah about judgment and how, although the word is used very negatively and has very negative connotations in America and the Christian scene, I think, doesn't have to when we see it in the light of this. He has a righteous cause. Christians have a righteous cause and people who hate us without cause. Uh, God will judge if they do not repent. Let us go before him in praise and adoration. Glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God above, maker of heaven and earth, you who are just and righteous. And we praise you, Lord, for that. We are thankful, God, that you are not a capricious God, a God who has unrighteous laws, uh, immoral laws, and immoral actions, God, but all that you do is righteous, good, and holy. 
And to that end, God, we are thankful that you have blessed us and you have given us salvation through Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness. And you are also making us righteous by the power of your Spirit, Lord, through our sanctification, making us more holy. And we long, God, for that completion. And we're thankful, Lord, for what we have even now through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And your righteousness and your justice and your holiness is exercised in our lives and the protection of your church and ultimately at the coming of the second, of Jesus Christ, God, the second time, in which the whole world will see publicly, God, our justification, that is our vindication before the world, that, God, we have done the right thing by your strength and spirit, Lord, to believe in Christ and to follow him. We do pray for our sins nevertheless, God, as we are sinners saved by grace, for perhaps ignoring your righteous cause, a righteous cause around us, in our lives, God, for perhaps being embarrassed for such psalms as this, or Zechariah, God, and the coming judgment of the Lord, and how the saints long for that day and rejoice in your righteousness. Our God and Savior, and for whatever other sins that we struggle, struggle with, God, help us to that end, to recognize them and to repent of them, to fight against them, Lord, and grow thereby your strength and repentance that you've given us in our hearts, to grow in faith and trust and reliance upon you, in your providence for us. We pray in particular, God, your spirit to be with our efforts and foreign missions in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that, Lord, you would help us with wisdom, help those in charge immediately there at the national level, and, of course, the Presbyterian local churches that support uh, various missionaries across the world, that you would give them wisdom, give them understanding of the best way to allocate resources and time and money and funds, Lord. Uh, these are serious debates at times, God, and not always clear-cut. May, again, they submit to your providence and to each other and their decisions. And we ask God for unity therein and insight to know where to send missionaries, where not to send missionaries, God, to know where a potentially fruitful field is, God. We cannot uh, live a life uh, through the church, Lord, that you've given us through foolishness, just throwing money anywhere just because it feels good, but rather we are supposed to be wise servants with what you've given us, Lord, and to use what is clearly before us, God, when we see that uh, we have very little fruit and we have to withdraw, although that may be hard and painful, Lord, may we do it righteously and with a heart that desires to do the right thing, God, before you. We ask God for outreach opportunities, Lord, uh, throughout the world. We think of our missionary efforts in Haiti, uh, Lord, a difficult time they have there. And uh, Lord, Murray Yuamoto in Japan and his wife, that you continue to be with them and help them, God, and give them access to a lost and dying world to hear the truth, especially as it comes from one of their own, Lord, one of those who have grown up and understands the culture in a way we would not uh, fully grasp God and it would show if we were over there. We're thankful for him and other like missionaries who have good access to others in other countries and have understanding and perhaps uh, have a, a similar heritage with them. We pray to that end, God, that you would help us to be fruitful to multiply in our missionary works across the world, in uh, Africa as well, Lord, and protection of the saints and the missionaries there. We think of the Christians, Lord, in the Middle East. We're thankful for the Middle East Reform Fellowship and uh, their efforts, Lord, over the many decades to preach the gospel, to transmit it, Lord, to the Muslims there in Egypt and Middle East and Israel and everywhere else, God, that they would continue to hear these truths and grow thereby, help that ministry pray, and all those who are involved in it, various and sundry pastors from different Reformed churches, Lord, and uh, other workers therein, that you'd also help them. We're thankful for the fruit that we have therein. We're thankful, God, that we have access and ability to spread 
the gospel of Jesus Christ across the world in accordance to your law and promise of the Great Commission. Our God and Savior, we pray for ourselves here and our families, Lord, and our difficult situations that we have, but also the many blessings that are bestowed upon us, upon our bodily concerns, upon our uh, concerns of our souls, Lord, upon all that you've given us. And we think of their health in particular. We lift up the Stansberries and the hardship upon them as they see their son slowly dying before their eyes. Help him, Lord. Comfort him. Comfort them. Our God and Savior, thy will be done. As hard as it is for us to pray, whatever that will may be, we certainly desire for his healing, our God, but we also know and understand your providence. We pray for others of us have chronic ailments that we're still struggling with, Lord. Inflammation of the body and the like that is very hard upon us. Very much a distraction can be discouraging or even angering. Help us, Lord, to resist such reactions at times and help us, Lord, to accept where where we are in our life and to do what we can to change it, Lord. But sometimes and certainly when it comes to these chronic ailments, there's very little we can do. And may we help them and pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with such things in their lives, God, that be with them. We ask, Lord, that you continue to be with us as your people and our callings and vocations in life. That is, where we are as children, as young adults, as adults and the elderly, Lord, who have much experience in different opportunities, Lord, depending on our callings in life and different abilities, Lord. Help us, God, to do our callings and vocations seriously as unto you, to exercise and stretch and to become more useful, to be more observant, perhaps, Lord, and not just in terms of knowing your word and applying it to our lives, God, and our, but also our jobs, whatever they may be, to do it as unto the Lord and to use our resources and our finances, God, as stewards, as those to whom you have lended these things, God, that we would use them aright and not waste them. Help us, we pray, to continue to have love for one another and to desire, God, to do our callings as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents, Lord, as citizens of this nation and neighbors in our communities, and Lord, as members of the kingdom of God. Help us, we pray to that end, Lord, that we would be humble and that we would grow thereby your word, the word of God, and the truth therein, both the law and the gospel. Be with us, we pray, this week and this your Lord's day, that your name may be glorified in all that we do. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
praise you, almighty God, with our hearts and our lives, and also with the giving of these tithes and offerings. Use them, we pray, mightily, and continue to give us wisdom and understanding, Lord, of how to use the funds to help those in need amongst the people of God, that the world may know that we love one another. And above all, Lord, for the, your glorious name may be magnified through the preaching of your word. Amen. While we are standing, let us <coughs> sing Psalm, uh, Psalm 2a. 2a. Reading of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Let us read them together. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Verses 12 through 15. We are ending the book here. Had much in it. As you recall, it's known as the Old Testament Gospel book. A lot of prophecies, and here we have a most interesting ending of this book. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight in Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. Gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall... Be the plague on the horse and on the mule, on the camel and on the donkey, and all the cattle that would be in those camps, so shall the plague be. Let us pray. With this graphic and amazing imagery, God, we see a glimpse of the future of judgment upon the world, upon those outside the church. We stand in awe of your justice, Lord, and your righteousness in executing such, God, upon unrepentant and stubborn hearts. And may we be 
encouraged to know you are a righteous God and you are doing the right thing, Lord. And it is not petty, but it is proper. And it is for our good as well. Help us, God, to grow thereby that we know that you are our judge and you will judge our enemies and you will also preserve us. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Here, in the final verses of this intense and dense book of Zechariah, we are given a glimpse of the future. Many orthodox and upright commentaries, of course, disagree with how best to understand this chapter, as I went over last time I preached on it. Anywhere from this relates to the fall of Jerusalem, so it's past for us, to it is only about the second coming and things in between. However, I think the best way to understand this chapter is to see it as a telescope encompassing the entirety of the future from that point on to the New Testament era, to the second coming of Christ. It is like an overlay of many events of history, overlapping like a a flat two-dimensional picture that takes on new significance when viewed in real life in 3D. If you can walk into those pictures, right, those beautiful pictures, and you find out, oh, there's a valley, there's a house behind here, you don't see all what's going on there. It's flattened, isn't it? And so is, I believe, the imagery here as it covers multiple things into the future. This is why the text describes, for example, the final destruction of nations and peoples alongside others who will not submit to the Lord who did not participate in the attacks on Jerusalem. We read that in verses 17 and 18. It shall come uh, whatever of the families on the earth that did not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king. On them there will be no rain. So you have those destroyed who attack Jerusalem. You have others who don't come up and that is submit to God and join his church in Jerusalem and they will be punished separately. How can these people exist at the same time uh, as those who are in Jerusalem? Because it's multiple things overlapping, I argue. There is pictured here, in other words, a mixing of saved and unsaved alongside what looks like the end of the age. Taking both of these gives me the opinion that we are seeing both things happening now. That is, nations of people going to Jerusalem that is being saved and the spreading of the gospel, as well as those who reject the Lord and the final judgment that comes upon them. There is temporal judgment now as a foretaste of the coming judgment. That's pictured here although not exclusively because it ultimately all points to the second coming of Christ and the great white throne of judgment itself. It's both. And so I see the verses here of judgment, as I said, covering both the ephemeral judgments now because they are temporary compared to eternity and then the ultimate long-lasting judgment of the great white throne and those who reject him are utterly rejected forever and ever. And the verses describe in shocking language what that judgment looks like. And that judgment is a just declaration of the king of the universe upon unrepentant and hardened hearts who wish to overthrow him and destroy their neighbor. This is an important point as I'm going into the first point here. The enemies of God. What about the enemies of God? Is it just kind of a petty thing? People kind of think that way about Christianity, our God, is just because they project upon themselves their petty anger and perceived slights upon them and how they would treat somebody. But instead, we have here in this description, not such a petty God, 
but a righteous and true judge of the universe who sees all and knows all and does the right thing at the right time always. And thus we see on the flip side here, if we believe God is just in all that he does, what we see here of this judgment upon these people reflects back upon the kind of people they are. It's not like us and a judge and, you know, we have a nine-seat Justice Supreme Court or two or three judges. I think it's three judges at um, the federal level. And you just do two out of three and six out of nine. Recognizing that they could have made a mistake and that this kind of judgment, you put the guy in the chair, oops, we made a mistake. Sure, this is nothing of the kind. And so you cannot infer from human actions that, oh, that person must have been really wicked because we gave him the chair. He could have been innocent, conceivably. With God, that's not conceivable at all. It's quite the opposite. You see, because of the destruction, how bad the people were. How guilty they were of hating God and refusing to repent when given the opportunity over and over and over again. Unfortunately, this doctrine is undermined when people believe the word of man over the word of God. When people say, I don't believe God exists, we're like, oh, this person doesn't believe God exists. Well, I can understand why he would act that way. I can appreciate why he's confused. No, that's not true. He does believe God exists. He's lying to you. Can't you see how it would affect the church and how we would kind of back off on the seriousness and the full proclamation of repentance upon these people? They'll say, to use a more common example in my experience, oh, I didn't know breaking marriage vows was so bad. Kind of knew it was not the best thing. Lying, little white lies, yeah, you know, whatever. They know. And they do it anyways. It's especially hard to recognize this when you have friends and neighbors who talk this way and try to convince you of what is not real. That they don't really understand their own sins. That they don't really know that there's a God in judgment. And so you kind of feel sorry for them. You can't, it's hard to picture sometimes because we live in the world and we, and we are with our friends and family members and coworkers for such a long time that God describes them unless they repent in this manner. Romans 1. <laughs> long list of sins and hardness of hearts. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth because what may be known of God is manifest in them. The truth of what? Of God. It's manifest in them. They know he exists. They know he's a righteous judge. They know he's coming unless they repent. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. They are invisible yet understood and known by everyone. Being understood by the things that are made that is, all humans, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that, to this end, they are without excuse. This text, these verses, this chapter, makes no sense unless we fully grasp how guilty men and women are. And, of course, this includes not only, the, I believe, the judgment we see now upon people and nations, but ultimately culminating in Christ Jesus' second coming when it's too late. You cannot repent. And it's, again, it's not as though 
It's in the church, brothers. So I want to highlight this. It's not as though these people are like, oh, if you just give me that one extra second after Christ came, I would have repented. Why didn't Christ wait one more second? No. A thousand times, no. They did not want to repent. Even if you gave them eternity. God knows this. His judgment is true and just. This is what I dub the natural guilt. There's a natural guilt. That is, they know in their hearts, they know by creation, Psalm 19 and everything else, right? That there is a God, there is sin, this, this world is broken, there's something wrong with it. They know something wrong with their heart. They still hate God. But there are enemies of God who have a double guilt, I would call it. Not just the natural guilt that everyone has, but a supernatural guilt added upon it. That is, those who know the gospel, those who know of the church, and are enemies of it anyway. They, they, don't, they not only have the knowledge of God built into them in creation, they have the knowledge of the Bible, either through the Bible directly or through the church and her witness. That's a double guilt. That's more illumination. To whom much is given, much is required, Christ tells us. Many know more. They went to Sunday school, perhaps. They heard the Bible quoted, even in commercials, Christmas songs, and their neighbor talking. In the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, we read of the Philistines who knew of the Jewish God, even calling him by the covenant name Lord, L-O-R-D. They were there, mingled in many ways, with the, Christ- with the Jews of the Old Testament. Of course, they oppressed them, <coughs> but their indications they sold and bought things with them. They were down the street from them. So they understood. <clears throat> they saw their false god, Dagon, fall to pieces. <clears throat> That's a supernatural revelation, isn't it? The God's in control. He fell and bowed down before the ark of God. But they didn't want to learn more. They didn't want to submit. Should not see the Philistines as a bunch of ignorant savages who didn't really understand the gospel. They were living with the Jews. They're in the same territory. They're down the street, right? We don't have an exact map, but we know they're along the coastal sign up to the, the hills and there they are, and they know this. They have so much. It was quite fascinating reading that. Oh, they, they know. They don't, they don't just know about God through general revelation, through natural revelation, but through supernatural revelation, through the people of God themselves, even if they hadn't heard the Torah explicitly. And thus they have a double guilt. They had every opportunity to repent, say, I want the God of Israel. I mean, God gave them those miraculous battles. That's more judgment upon the Philistines because they should have seen, it's a miracle. This God is greater than our God. Look what he did to our, our, our God, our idol. And how he delivered his own people again and again. We should submit to these people. We should, we should want their God. They didn't do that. Not a whit. So they have a double guilt. And that's what we were seeing in the West. Although a little less, ironically, I guess. Because as time goes on, more and more of the West have less and less Christian upbringing and experience with Christianity, right? But to the extent that we've had that heritage, we've thrown it away and we have a double guilt. 
the long-standing, full-scale rejection of our Christian heritage and the judgment we see upon it, God's judgment upon them, giving them up to their vile passions and debased minds, to quote Paul in Romans 1. The judgment of God upon hardened hearts. This is what we see a description of. God is punishing hardened hearts. Every heart is hardened at the great judgment if it's not softened by the Spirit of God. It is people who fought against Jerusalem. They attacked what? The church. Yes, you hear that when they attack the church, and yeah, that's not good. But you also should be attacking other people. Brothers and sisters, the church of God is unique. You are unique, and you are special. In Hebrews 11, we read of the suffering of the saints of God, of whom the world is not worthy. Isn't that interesting? What does the Old Testament call the people of God? That special, unique phrase, the KJV, the apple of God's eye, that we are precious to him. See, part of the problem we have, this is why I'm highlighting this. We hear it in the church. Everyone's made in the image of God. We're all special. We're all unique. We're all worthy. What? I mean, you know, the book review, right? Kind of talk that way. We should all love these people because we're all just kind of like us. They just didn't make a decision. No. We are being renewed in the image of Christ. They are fallen in Christ. Their image is fallen. So anything we talk about worth is a very relative worth. Sure, they're not, shouldn't run around randomly killing them because they're not Christians, but there's a qualitative difference, brothers and sisters. And God sees that, and he judges people who attack his church. Who attack his little ones. And try to steal our covenant children from us. The world wishes to destroy them, and God will destroy them if they do not repent. Their stubbornness, in other words, is seen in God's punishment itself. God does not met out unjust punishment, God forbid, and so we can reason from the punishment to the crime of cosmic treason. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule, on the camel, on the donkey. We read at the end of these verses, verse 15. And the cattle and all those in the camp, so shall the plague be. It is so bad that even the fruits of their civilization are destroyed. That's how bad the wickedness is and the stubbornness is. There is no wicked treasure in heaven. People talk about treasures of civilizations, not from the wicked ones. Justice met it out. Second point. And we'll get into the verses here. <clears throat> the last chapter of the confession we read, uh, judgment, the second coming of Christ. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the second coming of Christ, the great white throne of judgment. We read in Acts 17.30, where Paul speaks again to the unbelieving pagan audience, that is the traditional paganism of the day. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Up until that point, the nations had general revelation, thus a single guilt as a whole. Now he's highlighting you have a double guilt. The gospel is now spread out throughout the whole world. And you're going to hear the truth, and God's calling you to repentance. And who has he ordained to oversee that judgment? That man, Jesus Christ. He says of himself in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That is, the Son of God, who is the man-God, the God-man, Christ Jesus. He will come back with his body and judge as redeemer and the head of his church, the entire world. That's the picture we see here. Again, foretaste of it now, a little judgment here, and the fullness when Christ returns. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body, according to which he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, and we cry out to men that they repent, that they flee the judgment to come. God has brought revelation, and that revelation is an expression of his long-suffering towards the world and to the Gentiles, that they too may repent and believe. And if they reject it, they have what? A double guilt. And this shows that judgment upon those who went against Jerusalem. To go against Jerusalem means what? They know Jerusalem exists. They have animosity against the house of God, God's people. That's what we see there pictured, and I think it changes in verse 17. And those, uh, whatever families of the earth, do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the kings, a different context, to submit to the church, that is to God through the church, and become a Christian, be baptized, will be judged. And of course, it's not an Old Testament doctrine, it's a New Testament theme. I already pointed, pointed that out with Christ, speaking of judgment to come. Again, many people want to portray Christ as the great and lovely Lord and Savior, and he loves everybody and has a wonderful plan for them. There are Reformed variations of that. Again, I read a book that talked that way. Christ is the judge. He talks about hell a lot. <laughs> he warns his own people let alone those outside the church. He came to the house of Israel, right? To the Jews, the Old Testament saints, first. It's foundational to the New Testament, this judgment, this coming of Christ, and the apostles talked about it. Our confession there, again, mentions, and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, heaven and hell, For souls separated from their body, the scripture acknowledges none. That's it. It's heaven or hell. Jude 1, 6-7, we read, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah 
in the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That's it. They didn't go anywhere else. They went to hell, and then they'll be brought back for full judgment and sent back to an eternal torment because they are that guilty. And so we read in the text here a threefold judgment, a threefold description. I don't think it's necessarily qualitatively. <clears throat> uh, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes and their sockets. The plague he describes it as, destruction upon them and their body, and of course, by implication, their soul. It's a horrendous picture. I grew up, as you know, a dispensationalist, and this passage was used as evidence of a nuclear war. Maybe it'll happen? I don't know. I don't think so. Verse 13 is interesting. It shall come to pass in that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them. This echoes, we saw in Samuel, for example, with Jonathan climbing up to the outposts of the Philistines, and God brought a great deliverance uh, for him in which the Philistines fought themselves. <laughs> they brought chaos amongst themselves. Quite interesting. And that also happened in the book of Judges as well. It's a self-destruction. When you listen to stories of unbelieving families and the wars and terrorisms and the petty tyrants and abusive parents and the destruction of the West that we're living in these days, you see that self-destruction, the hatred of their own people, our leaders have, more and more of them. That's what we read here. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Not as a hello, <laughs> but as a whack. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to kill the babies. Taking up too much of my precious time. I'm going to destroy, take land, and covet. Whatever it is, we see here, as you recall, like I preached before, a storge. It's your neighbor, it says. You raise your hand against those you grew up with. You hate them. Or they hate them the enemies of God. And that's part of the curse of God upon sin in this world and sinners themselves. They grow in hate. Uh, T.V. Moore says, hell shall be hate, full of hate. We have a foretaste of that now, unfortunately. <clears throat> when they hate, their strength, they hate their neighbors, they have no natural love for them, for their own children, for their own family. That's what we read here. We should not think that's a blessing, <laughs> Uh, to have less love for one another. That's what we have, unfortunately, in America, but rather to curse. Judah, verse 14. We read a stripping of their, health, of their wealth and security. Verse 14. Judah also will fight with Jerusalem, which some um, take as a, a picture of uh, the church united together to stand firm against the onslaught of the devil in the world. I mean, Judah will also will fight at Jerusalem. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. There will be unity in the resistance to the world. I can't see that as a second coming per se. If this is be taken at least more than just, I don't know what else you would take it there, um, 
I think it's more evidence that it's a picture of things happening now, the church being united to some extent and resisting. I don't believe it's a picture. The only other way would be this would be a picture of the end times, the great battle, dispensationalism, although I think some traditional pre-mills have this, a physical battle in Jerusalem just before Christ comes. I don't believe that would be the case. Jerusalem, which is above, as Paul says very clearly, uh, the language of Jerusalem, of Judah, and the Old Testament applied to the church in the New Testament clearly says that we are the fulfillment of these things. But it continues on, The wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel, in great abundance. They'll be stripped of all that is ultimately not theirs, because God blessed them with it, and they use it to no good. Right? And the implication is it's given to the church. Because they're stripped. That's what happens in combat. You lose, you lose all your goodies. <laughs> you lose all your wealth, and it's given to the church of God. All those who turn on God's people will be judged, and all their wealth and security stripped from them. There's comfort, third point. Not just the enemies of God and their guilt before him, the judgment of God upon hardened hearts, but also the comfort in this judgment for the saints of God. For us today, obviously it's comfort for them. The emphasis there uh, at the time of Zechariah, the Spirit of God did not give him this prophecy so that they would have no comfort and just think, oh, it would be wonderful for the future believers, they're going to have comfort. What about me? No, it's given to them for their comfort as well as they're surrounded by their enemies. And as we know, part of the prophecies of Zechariah uh, mention and re- refer to, I believe, uh, the Maccabean re- revolt between the Testaments. And so it is for them and is also for us the comfort of knowing that we have done nothing wrong in following Jesus. They have done nothing wrong in following the promised Messiah. And he said, come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, let the enemies of God mock you, which they did. Keep doing the right thing. And those who hated and tormented and attacked God's people. These were God's people. Our people. And a New Testament era as well. All across the world and the sufferings of our people. And the ten great persecutions of the first two to three hundred years of the church. Our people, thrown to the lions, brothers and sisters, slowly devoured by a wild animal because they hate the church and they hate God. New Testament also talks about this judgment again. 2 Thessalonians 1.7. It's quite an interesting passage. I haven't seen this in a while. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-10. through 10. We read, of justice meted out. Verse 6, excuse me. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulations those who trouble you. Who are you? Christians! The church of God. It is a right thing. It is a righteous. God is just and he will punish those who hate his church and will not repent. And Verse 7, and to give you, it is a righteous thing for God to give you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, the rest comes at the second coming of Christ. This is one reason why we rejoice in the coming judgment. 
in a flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He's talking to Christians that were being punished, persecuted here. Those who give tribulation against you and trouble you, he says in verse 6. That's the context. And the answer he gives is what? Christ is coming to punish them. It's right there. Peter alludes to it. I've mentioned that three times there in the book of Peter. Verse 10, And when he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe, that's why we long and look for the great white throne of judgment. We know we will have our sins, but we know it's covered by Christ Jesus. We know we will uh, see some of those things we didn't see quite clearly. And acknowledge them as wrong, but acknowledge Christ Jesus as he who covers our wrong. The judgment for us is different than the judgment for them. Ours is a father. Theirs is a judge. And this is important. This is important doctrine for us today. Although we are not, again, like our brothers and sisters in Africa, the Middle East, China, North Korea, where they are literally tortured for their faith. And again, it's not tortured by people. Oh, I'm just kind of ignorant. don't know what I'm doing. It's kind of fun. I don't know. I'm kind of... No! They are guilty, guilty, guilty. The Bible is very clear about that. Natural revelation is very clear about that. All the martyred Christians, all the tortured families, all the firebombed churches, and that's just a sample of the small atrocities that we should feel and demand and cry out with the saints under the throne room of God that we read And Revelation, their blood cries out for vengeance. We've done nothing wrong. It's there. I'm not saying have blood blood loss, but to know that you have done the right thing and the world hates you, your boss is just making fun of you because you want to take the Lord's Day seriously, or whatever, making life miserable for you, they need to repent. And they have time to repent, and that's a good thing. But the grand scheme of things, this reminds us, that God will vindicate and protect his people, those who come up against Jerusalem, those who have taken our children. We want justice. Don't you want justice? Just keep thinking. All my research, I'm, I'm in my head of the wretched wickedness out there. This, the flag, I, they take kids, they torture them, they cut off their body parts, they shove them full of drugs, and they're miserable for the rest of their life. The girls' voices become male for the rest of their life. And they'll be depressed and their body won't handle it. Because men's bodies cannot handle that much estrogen and female bodies cannot handle that much testosterone. You want them to stop. They won't stop. And so you plead to God. They do that to Christian families. Don't you want justice? Isn't that a comforting thing? That God will right the wrong? God's final judgment is coming. It is not a judgment of a tyrant, nor a punishment from a wounded friend who feels slighted, but the just vindication of a righteous king against hardened rebels who try to destroy God's own people. That's the picture. This is but the other side of God's covenantal promise to us, right? That he is our God and we are his people. That's the implications here. And we should stand in awe and be satisfied that God will revenge 
the harm upon his people. Let us pray. Lord God, we see an awesome might, this terrible picture, this terrifying picture. And yet, Lord, may we stand all the more firm in the righteous thing that you have done and will do and promise to do, God, for we should look to the truth of the matter. We should see and have have a desire, Lord, have a, a fellow love and affection for our brothers and sisters who have been tortured, raped, and everything else the last 2,000, 5,000 Christians of the Old Testament. People who hate them, hate you. Help us, God, we pray, to stand firm and to have a desire for your coming. In your name alone we pray. Amen. <clears throat> let us stand and let us sing. 385, 385. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.